interviewing the leading private equity executives and unlocking the secrets of success. Welcome to the Private Equity Podcast with Alex Rawlings. Hello, everybody. Joining us today is Raina Rindal, managing partner, founder of Sumer Equity. Welcome and thank you very much for sharing your insights into the private equity industry with us today. Well, thank you very much for, for having me. Perfect. So, um, Raina joins us from uh, from Norway. Um, his firm's both got offices in Stockholm and in Oslo. So, for those who haven't heard of you or listened to the numerous bits and pieces you've put out with articles, podcasts, everything that you've shared during your career, just give us a kind of a 30 or 60 to 90 second breakdown uh, of yourself, please. Well, uh, that, that is a challenge in 90 seconds. But yeah, so I started up some equity in 2016. We were the first fund to commit to the UN Sustainable Development Goals. And we are a thematic private equity firm. So we invest within resource efficiency, changing demographics and tech-enabled businesses. So these three areas are really aligned with environmental, social and governance, so, so ESG. So we, we target companies that are solving some of our global challenges. And for us, you know, if we can measure that and screen that according to the 17 UN Sustainable Development Goals, for us, it's not a problem worth solving. So we're in the mid-cap private equity space, focusing on the Nordic, but in some of the areas, we are looking at uh, deals really globally now and build up a portfolio of of 14 companies. So that's where we are managing around one and a half billion uh, euros. You know, I often get the question of why, you know, why going on this path? And, uh, you know, 2016 is not that long ago, but the world has really changed uh, quite a bit in uh, in these five years. So it was, so we had some of the leading mainstream uh, LPs in, in our funds, but I did get a lot of questions around our sustainability focus and, and the alignment with the SDGs and, our, and also our thematic ESG aligned uh, focus. The reason why I started SUMA was after the financial crisis. So I've been in private equity for quite a long time. I was also in, in McKinsey before that, and I ran a tech company for three years that I took public. But the financial crisis really changed a little bit of my outlook. I, I, I didn't learn that at school or in any of the jobs I've had that the financial crisis would come. So obviously, I started digging into why, why did it come and also understanding more of how the implications of our system on our ecological degradation and climate change and also social inequalities. So became increasingly worried about where the world was heading. So at some point, I looked myself in the mirror and asked myself if I was part of the solution or part of the problem. And I was sitting there with a pretty broad private equity portfolio, including some oil and gas companies and other companies. I didn't feel that I really had made a choice regarding becoming a, a part of the solution to, to our challenges. So that's why I, I, I decided to leave the private equity industry, started working with uh, philanthropy, and then I uh, started working with uh, impact investing. And it was through that journey where I really saw that some of the best companies growing, uh, growing tremendously are those that are solving some of the, uh, the challenges that we have. So that's why I decided to form a strategy around it and, and build SUMA. Perfect. No, I really like your header. It's not ESG. It's not sustainability. It is solving global challenges. And I do um, I do like that as a headline. It was a branding company that came up with that and well done to them. If it was you guys, then even more impressive. Um, it was actually us. So we right. didn't, uh, yeah. 
Excellent, excellent. Yeah. So it's very clear. And I think it's really differentiating as well, because I think a lot of people chase the sustainability. And I know there's been recent uh, recent legislation put in that uh, is, is therefore changing how uh, sustainability has to come into private equity. And um, no doubt you'll uh, know a lot more about that than certainly than I do. But uh, I think that gives you a really clear uh, kind of mandate, not only for your LPs, but also I think it's driven from your LPs. And that was going to be one of my questions it's been driven from you and uh, and wanting to make those changes in, in the world that we see now. So well, let, let's delve into that. So you mentioned about the, the focus on that. What are your goals for the for the firm um, that are linked to that, you know, that global change, that, that solving those challenges? So there are a few things that we measure across the portfolio and you're focusing on uh, CO2 footprint, uh, obviously, and, and the ecological degradation. Also, and the employment that we create, and also diversity. So, um, but uh, other than that, when it's linked to the SDGs, it's really specific per company because each of them are solving a different challenges. Although we do have some overlapping companies. So, uh, what we try to do is first of all, when we meet the company, when we screen it, we're very focused on what challenge is this company solving, and do they have a leading solution for solving that challenge? because we want to invest in winners. So uh, once we sort of go into some, we're quite problem focused when we're searching for a company to buy. So within each, each of our themes, we have a priority of this, uh, this year, we will focus on this problem. And then we have a, a good group of, of people which have a background in understanding those challenges and the industries and the companies that uh, are part of it. So take waste and recycling. So our waste is a huge uh, problem, both from a resource standpoint and from a CO2 climate uh, change uh, standpoint. So once we sort of target that, then we are looking for which are the best companies to buy. And then so it's part of a screening criteria. So for a recycling company, obviously, we are looking then at what's material to their business and how they're solving this challenge. It's both, you know, how much ton of waste do they actually process? Is it real processing or is they just moving the waste from one place and, and dumping it in a landfill? So what's the, the actual recycling rate, uh, both the material recycling and the energy recycling uh, rate? And how much net CO2 is saved by doing that? And how much of the resources are, are, are recovered? So that's how we go about uh, linking, uh, and I can go through each of our areas uh, in, uh, in, in this fashion. So it's very specific what problem that company is solving, but we have always started with the problem, uh, problem definition. And if you look in our, our, our reporting, uh, we, we link those uh, KPIs to the reporting that we do, but also the, the financial plan and the strategic plan. So when we make the strategy plan for the company, uh, together with the management team, it ends up with a business case and a financial case, and all private equity firms do that. But as a main driver, they all, it also have to drive the KPIs. Uh, so for the for our waste and recycling companies, for example, they have to show that they can e- increase the recycling rate uh, and also process more uh, more waste, so they are they are growing, and that's feeding into their bottom line. So that's very much how we go about uh, doing it. How do you, and, and that's and that's interesting because I think. There's a, there's a can be a, a misconception I hope um, that within sustainability and those good investments that maybe they don't align well with what we regard as typical private equity returns um, and as much as this is great this that, that you're investing in these types of businesses how do you ensure that the businesses you invest in give the kind of returns that bring the next fund the next fund and the right LPs 
how do you get that that kind of uh, aligned so it's uh, what we're doing is really embedding this into the strategic and business case for the company so and that uh, you you have to have a business case and a financial plan that you believe in that's really where your our base case uh, is is driven from as it is integrated and uh, and we are very much focused on growing growing the companies and 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 in that way solving the challenge better and also upgrade along the way how they are solving that challenge to 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 improve so what we have have said since the start is that this is a new way of creating uh, higher returns so our approach is creating superior returns it's not a trade off between sustainability and uh, and your financial return so um uh, we've written an article called Private Equity 4.0 for the Journal of Applied Corporate Finance, where we go through the, the phases that private equity has been through. So phase one was in the 80s, uh, with the uh, barbarians at the gate and financial engineering, where private equity bought large, it was the KKRs, bought large conglomerates, broke them up, put a lot of debt on them, and incentivized uh, management to, uh, to create value. And then uh, more and more private equity shops were, were started, and you had to do something new in order to drive further value because there weren't that many conglomerates uh, left and so everyone was doing financial engineering. So in the, in the 80s and, and 90s, it was um, a lot of focus on margin improvements instead. So private equity firms added operating partners. Uh, you had the Toyota production system, lean manufacturing, Kanban, all of these, these tools. Um, so it was a lot of focus on margin improvements. So the private equity 2.0. Then uh, in uh, around the, the turn of the century, the private equity firms uh, started to be quite many and started to compete with, uh, with, with strategic buyers, but didn't have the same synergies. So you saw a lot of the private equity firms become large global institutions with industry teams and also finding way to get, uh, get value across the portfolio, whether that was on purchasing or, or, or better sales or, or whatnot. So that was sort of the institutionalization of, uh, of private equity, sort of 3.0. What was different from, from what we call 4.0 is now you have to integrate sustainability and ESG into the value creation. If not, you're going to underperform on, on, on returns. Uh, why? Well, the reason is um, it's really about what kind of externalities a company uh, makes. So, for, uh, so what kind of uh, impact do you have on, on society, environmentally or, or socially? And what's the cost to society of that? Those externality costs didn't really matter during private equity 1.0 up to 3.0. It didn't hit your PL, it didn't hurt your valuation of your companies. So there's very little effect on return. And that has changed. So uh, I think you know, in a world that is as troubled and volatile and have issues that we have, these externalities are going to be moved uh, onto the PL. So CO2 is going to be be taxed. It's already doing been done that now in, in Norway and in several countries. Also, the people, especially the younger people, care much about working for a company that has a meaning and a purpose. They want to be part of the solution. So if you're going to attract the best talent for your portfolio companies or for the private equity firms, uh, you need to integrate this way of, of thinking as well. And now LPs care about it. So uh, if you're going to raise the money, you, you will have, need to have a strategy around ESG and, uh, and sustainability. And for us, uh, as a value driver, first of all, it has helped us uh, source the companies since we are quite thematically focused and we know what we're looking for. And we have a story around why, why we are knocking on your door and why we would be a good owner. And we have a developed a methodology for how to drive the growth in the companies uh, in order to, to do this. 
So it's a long answer to, to, to your question, but I can take one specific example, which we just announced. So Sotera, which is the, one of the largest waste and recycling companies in Sweden, it was one of our first investments. The company, so we owned it for nearly five, uh, five years. We now sold it to, to Nordic Capital, who's going to continue the growth journey that uh, we had. We made over eight times the money on that investment. The IRR was over 80%. Uh, the company has now more EBITDA than, than revenues when we bought it five years ago. And we haven't put any new equity into it along the way. So this has been organic as part of it has been through add-ons, uh, which have been debt financed. But the whole strategy plan was driven based on our sustainability focus, where we were looking at how can we grow this company and how can we upgrade what they're doing in the recycling space and how can we show society and also attract the best employees in how we're solving some, some challenges and, and, and what kind of positive externalities the company has created. So, so, so Terra across any industry in Sweden and any company was voted the, the 11th most sustainable company in Sweden. You know, and IKEA is on that list and a few other companies. So, and this was purely driven by our embedding, embedding uh, sustainability into the growth strategy and driving the value creation. And that's why the exit multiple was nearly twice our entry multiple on, on it as well, because the market recognizes that this is a future-proof strategy. This com- company will continue to grow. It has the future in, uh, in front of it. So, uh, so that's just one of example of how this is really driving superior returns uh, in our industry. Excellent. A good, uh, good example of you've been able to get a return with it and adding those additional X's probably because of that sustainability and future of the, uh, of the business. So that, that definitely quashes the misconception of, uh, you know, this model not sitting certain private equity and obviously, you know, Nordic Capital, uh, albeit that I'm sure they will have now a sustainability program that they're, they're rolling out. You know, you they were very focused on it. So I think, yeah. I think private equity is is waking up to this, and uh, and it is the best place to start because we are majority owners of our companies, so we can be an instrumental part of how to drive the value creation, the strategy in the company. So I think more and more private equity firms are starting to understand that this that this could be a material driver for 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 the value creation. Excellent, excellent. So the so looking at obviously you um, worked in private equity, you kind of came away looking. Um, for something more down the philanthropy route and looking at different options. You mentioned you looked at impact investing. Why set up your own private equity firm? Why found, why go through all the stress and strain of raising funds and everything else that comes with it and, uh, and establishing SUMA? What would the alternative be? <laughs> I mean, there I'm were sure there, a lot of people there, listening who'd come up with a lot of other ideas. Um, yeah. Although, you know, holistically, I think they'd like to have that. But what was it that drove you to, okay, I'm going to find my own firm. I'm not going to go and work for anyone else. There's nobody that fits the criteria. Well, I, I, don't, do think I, I don't think I am a typical entrepreneur. Uh, so I probably it would have joined if there was another sum out there, but there wasn't. And I really believed in this strategy, and this is what I wanted to do. I, I wasn't sure that this was going to be successful or that I would be able to put together our first fund. So, uh, but, but uh, what was good is that I did have a couple of LPs who were strong backers and believed in the strategy. So, uh, so that sort of helped, helped us get started. And we did Sotera, which I mentioned, and, and one other deal prior to raising the fund because we had, we had backing on a deal-by-deal basis and also approved, approved the strategy um, as well. 
So, uh, so I decided to, to start Summa because uh, there wasn't anyone else out there doing this. Makes sense. And what, what are the biggest uh, kind of, or the biggest or the biggest couple of challenges that you've faced with setting up your own private equity firm? I think the main, so from an LP standpoint, we have some of the leading mainstream LPs uh, globally. At that point, they were purely return focused. So they didn't have a mandate that includes, you know, sustainability or, so it was the question that you also brought up, whether would this be a trade-off on returns? And uh, so I had to spend considerable time explaining how the megatrends, how tailwind growth, give them examples of companies, why these companies would outgrow the general market, why they're more future-proof, how it's driving their margins, and how it would uh, also drive their, their valuation. Although we never put into our base cases that the value uh, multiple would go up. So, you know, we would buy and sell at the same multiple. So the, uh, the valuation would really be the increase, would really be driven by, by the growth in the companies and, and the improvement. But I think that was the number one challenge initially to, to really convince LPs that this, this was going to give them high returns, not lower returns. The um, one way of convincing them is actually that we, we were, if they, did, if they didn't get superior returns, we'd get a lower carry. So our carry goes down to 15% if we underperform on, on the return side. But then also we get an upside. So we get more than 20% if we do well. Um, and so far we are, we are actually above our, our top end on, on returns. So that was from, uh, from the LP side. On the deal side, my worry was a bit that, you know, was the universe big enough? Because since we are thematically focused, uh, would there be enough deals to do? I've been surprised positively that uh, not only have we had a very strong pipeline uh, of deals, but we have been the preferred buyer in 90% of our deals. So they have short-circuited uh, auction processes. The, you know, we have got exclusivity prior to the processes. They've only had one-to-ones with us. So you know, for, for companies, and especially founders selling the company or bringing on board a partner, to, to have uh, an owner that is aligned with what you're doing and that's very purpose-driven and focusing on the core of the business and how to drive that and how that is providing positive benefits for society. That has been a, a, a very strong positive force on the sourcing uh, side. So that, that wasn't really a challenge, but there was a concern I, I had. Yeah, it's interesting. Well, there's, a, there's a podcast that isn't out yet, but it will be at the point when, when this goes out with um, Oliver... Uh, Gottschlag, um, who's a an academic um, who studies private equity, runs his own firm. You may may know of him. He spoke a lot about creating a, a private equity firm that knows its strengths, that knows what it plays in, and positioning itself. And you've just described exactly his his kind of thoughts and beliefs. It comes down to you know, in essence, how how I would see it as a business owner, branding, marketing. You know, he saw it. Uh, is that look let's get the fundamentals right this is what we do this is where we play these are the returns we get from this and being able to market that effectively and it sounds like that's not only working for for new lps with that probably the initial education piece whereas now i'm sure it's a lot easier for you based on the fund track record but also the sustainability kind of word coming up a lot more from an lp perspective but also sounds like you're attracting portfolio companies and getting through processes quicker and, and being the preferred num- uh, preferred private equity investor because of your beliefs and because of the model and because of what you're offering. Is that is that right? Yeah, I, I would say it, yeah. Interesting, interesting. It shows that kind of specific, and I think people fear going too niche and going too specialist, and that's why we have 
far too many generalists going up and down the small mid, maybe not of the large cap end, but uh, um, there's certainly too much of a, a broad uh, broad focus there. Um, I mean, what's interesting, I mean, we started out with a Nordic focus because that's where, where, where we are and, and our track record are. But one, since we have been quite specialized in, in, in a few areas, uh, we, are not, we are seeing deals coming to us uh, globally within those areas. And that's because we have a portfolio, we have built a brand and, uh, around it, and we do have the main knowledge in, in those areas. So it's, it's quite interesting to see how, um, as I said, I, I was concerned about uh, the, how many deals there would be in this space in the Nordic. Uh, and suddenly you realize that uh, the, the competences that we build and, and, and the understanding and, and the recognition, it makes us really global much, much faster uh, within these uh, sort of narrow, uh, narrow areas where we really have become, become specialists um, and, and have a portfolio and uh, knowledge. Sounds like your ambition is not just to remain in the Nordics then. We're seeing uh, sewer expand uh, internationally from there as well. Yeah, we've already done a few deals uh, outside the, the Nordic and, and some of our, we do have uh, some of our principals, which are our operating partners and industrial advisors, uh, now sitting globally uh, within, uh, within the areas uh, that we focus deeply on. Interesting. So prior, you mentioned in uh, Pride Sumer, you were obviously spent time in McKinsey. You then spent time with uh, as a chief exec. How have you found that change from running a business and being at the leadership end to, to now in investing in companies? How is that transition? I think it's quite, imp I mean, uh, I think most private equity firms will, uh, will confirm this, that in the end, it is about people. But I think very few people in the private equity industry, more so in the growth of VC uh, part of, of the private equity spectrum, really have that much knowledge from, from operating a company and what, what that takes in order to drive and to build an organization and the culture. So uh, what we, we are quite purpose-driven as a firm. So very much thought into sort of what are our purpose, what are our values, how do we work as a team, how do we build the culture in SUMA. And I think that differentiates us from other private equity firms, which have been less focused on, uh, on creating that DNA and, and a value-driven, purpose-driven organization. Then on the, uh, on the portfolio side, that's, that's the same. So there's a, there's a Harvard Business School case study on, on SUMA on, uh, and also how we work with creating purpose-driven organizations. So with all of our portfolio companies, if you can really get that flywheel going with the organization all the way down and not only the border uh, becomes purpose-driven and, and the organizations see that the strategic and operating decisions and, and that management walks the talk, and that this is really happening and believe in it, motivations goes up, innovation goes up, psychological safety goes up. So uh, the performance of those companies are extraordinary. You know, we have, if you look through 2020, our portfolio, so we have, uh, and all of them were affected by COVID-19 in some way or form. All of them came out of 2020 better than 2019. Despite that, you know, if you take Norsk Envinning or Sotera or two waste and recycling companies, the volumes fell because the business activities started up, but they outperformed on all levels in 2020 compared to 2019. So you see the huge difference when you have a purpose-driven, motivated organization, very much focused on the challenges and how to solve them and how to contribute, much more agile. And they're willing to take, take salary cuts across the board voluntarily in order to, 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 to excel. 
and improved. So I think it's it's something everyone knows in the private equity industry and will say, but I do think very, very few work on it. And, and that's why, you know, if you're going to be purpose-driven, you have to figure out what your purpose is. And your purpose has to then to be uh, be uh, be anchored in something externally. It's not, you know, you, per- you, you can't create a purpose-driven company among that, you know, we're going to make the most money in the world. That's not going to, to, to drive... Uh, really the motivation in the organization. But if you can do something positive for society, uh, whether you're a waste recycling company, a healthcare company, a tech company, it's, it's, it's a huge driver for, for performance. Okay. And what, having worked on both sides of the table and, and the, the, the operational roles first, what advice would you give to, to kind of PE professionals that are listening on how they can better engage and, and communicate with their, their portfolio executives? I think is what is what is quite important is to build an internal organization in the private equity firm that is quite diverse, and diverse not only on gender. Gender is quite important, um, but also from a background wise. So, and the way we work thematically with our, our principles, which comes from an operating background, how we sort of make them the the chair in our companies, how we work, uh, they sit with us and work hundred percent, up to hundred uh, percent with us in our have the same economics as any on the, on the investment partner side. You know, nearly half of our investment organizations are women. They, they, they see all the things that men do, and it, culturally it, it makes, you know, the dynamics and how you work as a team and how you, how you pull together different knowledge uh, into the team uh, quite differently. So I think, you know, the, the old approach uh, coming a little bit from, uh, from PE 1.0 and 2.0, with financial engineering and also the margin uh, improvements and sort of very technical skills that has changed in the knowledge society and where everyone wants to have a uh, to work with something meaningful you need to build a different organization and, and most most private equity firms that have been in the business for 20 30 years haven't made that shift yet and i think that is quite necessary if they are going to work well with with the portfolio companies in a, and add value in a different way and and help them see things and uh, and create performance on the organizational side. Absolutely. And, and you mentioned kind of, you know, P 1.0, 2.0, 3.0. Where, where do you see the, the do you see the 4.0 as the, as the ESG side, or do you see that, see that different? Yeah. What's your interpretation of 4.0? So 4.0 is about how to integrate uh, ESG into value creation and reducing risk. So, and ESG, the, you know, the whole framework is really about externalities. What kind of impact does a firm make on uh, on the environment, on socially, and and how do you and how can this and how can a company be uh, be affected by externalities? Like the pandemic is an externality that is affecting all of us. So the uh, the uh, the G and the governance side, that's an area where private equity always have been good. So uh, the private equity model is an excellent model when it comes to, to driving value and, and performance in, uh, in companies. But it's the E and the S side where, uh, and the externalities where that hasn't been integrated uh, before. And that's where, you know, it's a risk uh, if, if you don't really think about the possibility that the pandemic will come. I mean, Bill Gates and others have, have warned about it for a long time. It's not like it was a black swan. It's, it's a white swan. And it was fairly probable. We no, none knew when it was coming. But, you know, why don't, why don't have a scenario where, where, where you, you sign check your portfolio or an investment if there is a pandemic or climate change? 
have people started to do that? I mean, we have done it for five years and I think some are starting to do it now and, and stress test their portfolio on it. Social inequality and the middle class disappearing. You know, how, how will that affect your you, you, you base cases in some of the uh, retail industries, for example? So I think, so for us, it's really about how do you drive the top line and value in the companies by integrating ESG and sustainability, but also how you mitigate risks uh, and the downside by understanding fully the, uh, the ESG risks, both externally and, and within the company. So that's where the 4.0 um, differentiates, is that you look at externalities and you look at how that's going to affect your, your growth, the valuation of the company, and the risk in the company. And you make investment decision based on it, but you also do the value creation plan based on it, and you have mitigation plans based on it. So aside from that, that kind of... ESG and the ES, as you mentioned. So if we put that to one side, what what one mistake or what's the biggest mistake that you see kind of private equity firms are making? And I appreciate, you know, you won't spend all your time studying this. You, you, you come across as quite analytical. You've obviously put a lot of thought into Sumer and no doubt analyze the market. What do you see as the, the kind of biggest mistake that PE firms are making aside from considering ESG? I think uh, it's the way they go about ESG and ESG. What you know, ESG. The way I'm explaining it is different from what others when they explain what ESG is. Okay. So, for most, at least until quite recently, ESG was a check the box approach. Make sure that the portfolio companies had the you know policies on child labor or uh, or, or whatever. So it was really focusing on much uh, of a of a checklist, policies in place. Make sure that you do the right thing. Predictive firms added uh, people on the you know ESG risk officer, so they had uh, some have an ESG uh, department, and they create a lot of these these frameworks and checklists, and the, they get in sort of specialists as part of the due diligence to do the checklist. We don't do that, so obviously you know some core policies all of our companies have, but that's you know that's pretty standard and uh, and not a big deal. But it's really, uh, we want our investment teams, we want our, our value creation teams to embed this in, in, in the strategic value creation agenda of the company, in the follow-up in the boards and how you know, we make decisions, how we drive operating decisions in our, in our portfolio companies, and also thematically what kind of firms we invest in. So for ESG, for us, it's not a separate entity, it's not a check-the-box approach, you know, it's not an ESG person who sort of makes sure that all the deal team does the, the right thing. This is at the core of what we do uh, on the investment side and on the value equation side. And looking at um, the private equity industry, what is it that you love about private equity? And equally, what is it you hate? And if hate is too much of a strong word, what do you dislike? Well, I really like, I think it's a fantastic ownership approach. I mean, we are, we, we are close to the companies. We are active owners. We are, we are aligned with the management teams. We have a focus on what kind of value we want to create. We're agile. So I, I think you've seen in every downturn, there's been this criticism that a lot of the returns in private equity is coming from uh, that we have a lot of debt on the companies. So obviously, the equity returns go up, but the risks go up then, right? But that's not what you see in the data. Yes, we do have higher leverage than uh, a public listed company has. But you also see that we are, uh, the private equity-owned companies over, overperform at least uh, equities in, in downturns. 
because of this agile set of, uh, of operating where we can make very fast decisions together with management. We can do the changes. We, we, we're close to the company. We drive the changes. So that's where I think uh, the, uh, the private equity model is, 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 uh, is a superior ownership model. So that's what I really like about private equity. What do I don't like about private equity? You know, it's like, then I'm probably generalizing a bit. Uh, because I do, you know, I, I know a lot of the private firm. I think they all have some unique, uh, fantastic features and, and great people. It's been a very sort of money-driven industry. It's been male-dominated, quite uh, egocentric. So I don't, you know, if, if it, is, it, is it the best place, is it the most fun places to work? You come in to work every day and you feel like, you know, I love all my you know, we are aligned on the values and what we're doing. It's a nice, uh, good environment. You know, it's high fives. Uh, or is this a pissing contest? You know, my deal is better than yours. And uh, look at what I've achieved. Uh, so I think, and, and you find both spectrums there. And you probably do that in the corporate world. I've spent less time in the corporate world than, than in the private equity world. But I think that's, uh, at least when I set out to start Summa, I wanted to have this new strategy around sustainability and ESG and to create value in, in that way. And I wanted to create a different firm. I wanted to, to create a firm where everyone just loves coming to work and where we bring our whole self to work and where we work as a team and where we help each other out. Uh, so a different type of culture and, and sort of value-based uh, organization. And with obviously us being an executive search firm, talent is... Uh um, they're always on the uh, always on our minds. Um, you mentioned it earlier about the people within the within the business. What do you? Um, what are the kind of three attributes that you perceive make a, a top performing either portfolio executive, private equity professional, whichever you uh, uh, you want to describe? Maybe both. So for us, it's quite important that you are purpose driven and you have your values aligned with us. So, I mean, that you can be fantastic in every other uh, measure. But if that's not aligned with us, you're not part of SUMA, nor will we hire you as a as the executive uh, group or, or or the board in, in any of our portfolio companies. On the investment side, I would say it's two things that are very important to us beyond that. Uh, one is to have high conviction. You know, we want to look at a deal, we want to meet the management team, and we want to form an opinion quite quickly. Is this something that we would like to go all in uh, and, and, and invest in? Or is this exactly, yeah. So we have to prioritize our time quite a lot. So if we run after every possibility that there is, you know, we will not be able to, to, uh, to make the best deals. So I am looking for individuals who have high conviction on, on, on things and, and that conviction should be a good conviction. So obviously there's some, some factors below that um, as well. I would say the, uh, the, the third thing is how do you connect with people? So... What I tell uh, our, our teams is that, you know, it's like a soccer match. You go out there on the, on the, to the match and you, and you want to win the, the match. So what kind of match do we want to win? What, what's our soccer match? Uh, well, our soccer match is, uh, is the first management meeting. If we are not able to win over the people that they would like to work with us as owners, it would be a difficult journey. So I do want people that connect with people, that see people, that understand people, and that are givers, not uh, takers, as, as Adam Grant uh, has written a book called uh, giver, giver and Taker. So I, I'm, I'm looking for people that wants to be uh, at service. They want to help. And they, they have the ability to see the person on the other side and, and see what kind of struggles and, and how to help. 
and make that people person feel that uh, you know I'm here to help. I'm not your I'm not your owner going to dictate what you're going to uh, to do. Uh, but I'm I'm actually here to serve and, and help. You mentioned a, a book there by Adam Grant. Um, where where do you get your influences from? You know, reading, listening, watching. Where do you get your uh, your influences from? Multiple sources, and I think through through my own journey, where I sort of were digging into where our financial system was going. You know, climate change, uh, social inequality. I've been all over the place and, and, and gotten inspirations from uh, from that in uh, leading up to the decisions that I made and, and, and Summa. So I would say over the five, six, seven years, what has been uh, very important to me is our cooperation with uh, with Professor George Serafame and, and, and Rebecca Henderson at uh, Harvard Business School. So, uh, so Rebecca Henderson just came out with a book called Reimagining uh, Capitalism, and, and Professor George Serafame is coming out with his book soon. And the class they've had at Harvard is called Reimagining Capitalism. So, Summa is a case uh, study in it. Norskian, any one of our portfolio companies, is a case study in it. And uh, that whole thinking that they have formulated is very much aligned, and, and Summa is partly based on it, and they have been advisors uh, to us along the way. So, uh, and, and reimagining capitalism is, is the most oversubscribed MBA class at, uh, at Harvard. So the student have had quite demand of, of understanding how, how to change the world in a, in a positive uh, direction. So they have been very inspirational to me. I would also say uh, Amy Edmondson, uh, professor at Harvard as well, uh, written the book Fearless Organizations is, uh, and how important psychological safety is and how that drives performance in, in companies been been very important. Also, a French ex-McKinsey uh, author, uh, Lalou, which has written a book, Reinventing Organizations, is also a quite fascinating book um, and quite avant-garde. Um, uh, and Adam Grant at, uh, at Wharton, which I referred to, also fantastic individual psychologist, um, written several good books, uh, originals, give and take, just came out with Think Again, which is a fantastic book. But he's also picked up on, on, on some of what Lalu is saying in reinventing organizations about self-managed organizations. So how, how do you make teams be self-managed um, and drive performance that way? So I, uh, that has been quite inspirational. In, in how to create sort of purpose-driven organizations and, and, and self-driven organizations. Yeah, so those are a couple of the things I can uh, can think of right now. That's quite a lot there, I think, for anybody to uh, to go away and, uh, and research. If anybody wants to reach out to you after these uh, after this conversation, maybe to go offline with regards to sustainability or, or whatever else from there, um, how best does anybody kind of reach out to you, René, to, um, to have a conversation? I'm on LinkedIn, so that's probably uh, one place to start. Perfect. We'll put your um, uh, contact details in the in the show notes with uh, with all the details on that. Well, look, thank you very much for joining us, Rainier. I really appreciate your insight. Really enjoyed this conversation. Well, thank you, and I'm uh, I'm really happy about uh, about being here. Absolutely. So as always, thank you very much for those listening for joining us. And of course, should you ever need support both with private equity professionals or your portfolio executive hiring, please do reach out to me at Raw Selection. Uh, please do subscribe. And obviously, you'll get notified of the next podcast. But till the next time, keep smashing it. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Private Equity Podcast on www.raw-selection.com.